Today on Pro Corner, my conversation with Texas men's swimming and diving assistant coach, Wyatt Collins. I met Wyatt in 2011 when he transferred into Texas as a junior from Boston University, and we became teammates and classmates. I wanted to talk to him today for two reasons. Number one is obvious. The main reason a lot of us are listening today is because Wyatt is the assistant coach at the University of Texas men's swimming and diving team, the best swim team in the country. He's been that since 2016, and obviously his take on what it takes to run a dynasty like the Texas swim team is something that everybody wants to hear his perspective on. The second reason is a little less obvious and way more big picture. Since Wyatt transferred in 2011, he has been at every single to an extent, Texas men's swimming and diving practice for the last nine years. And his role has shifted every single year, it seems, since then. His junior year, he was a member of the swim team. His senior year, he quit swimming, but immediately transitioned into being an undergraduate assistant under head coach Eddie Reese and associate head coach Chris Kubik. After graduating in 2013, Wyatt then became the volunteer assistant coach. He spent the next three years learning from assistant coach Chris Kubik what it takes to help run a program like Texas. Then, in 2016, after over 30 years coaching, Chris Kubik stepped down and Wyatt took his place. Even though he's been the assistant for the last four years and the role structurally hasn't changed, the way that he approaches the role has even changed year to year and is in his own mind drastically as well. So that means Wyatt has seen nine unbroken years of change at a swim team like Texas, where excellence is expected every single year. He's seen the program win four national titles. He's seen perspective of athlete, volunteer assistant coach starting at the very bottom, new assistant coach that was getting his feet underneath him. And now he's in a place where he settled into his job and he's cruising along. We talk about the type of change that occurred while he was there. And it's really interesting for me because like I said, we were classmates. So I saw the team as it was when he got there and he had such a fresh set of eyes because he, he discusses this in the episode. He rolled in blind. He didn't know anybody. His recruiting trip was less than a day right before he transferred. And he just kind of showed up and became a part of the swim team. And he hasn't left the deck since, which means he's seen the changes that occurred over the last nine years as classes have come and gone, team cultures have shaped and shifted, championships were won and lost, Olympians, uh, multiple Olympic teams were made by athletes on the swim team. And I'm very interested in Wyatt's perspective on the changes that college swim teams go through, especially one as mythical as the Texas swim team. For you guys, I wanted you to hear Wyatt's story because he's a really cool guy and he's really thoughtful about his position and the weight that the position carries. He's very aware of both the responsibility and the duty involved with being the assistant at a place like Texas, but he's also very aware of the positive side of the job and the way that he can shape his own journey and use that weight that he carries to massively impact the lives of the athletes that he coaches in a way that radiates throughout their lifetimes. 
you know, I'm seven years removed from being a varsity swimmer on that team. And sometimes I feel like the impact that it's had on me has only grown with time. And I actually mentioned one specific way that I incorporated into a recent life event in the episode and why I got a kick out of it, clearly. Um, but now why it's in that same kind of position and it's fascinating to me. So I loved talking to him and I think you all are going to enjoy his story. Quick note before we get started, um, I've gotten a lot of great feedback, suggestions, and questions from listeners so far to where I'm actually going to do a live mailbag episode pretty soon where I read whatever was sent, whether it's some of the questions I've gotten or some of the suggestions and feedback, and I'll answer it, give my take on it, whatever it may be. Um, if you have a question or you have something that you want me to have a take on or address, DM the pod at Pro Corner Podcast or email me directly, austin at procornerpodcast.com. If I get a couple that really resonate, I might even bring in a guest to read them with me and give their take on it as well. So DM or email the pod with anything you got. And with that being said, let's get started with Wyatt. I'm here with Wyatt. We've just been chopping it up a little bit, um, talking about how bummed we are about Texas's close loss yesterday in the Red River shootout, one of the best Texas-Oklahoma games we've ever seen, but just a really, really disappointing end. And also talking about just how much we love Sam Ellinger. Um, besides the loss, Wyatt, how are you doing tonight, man? Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing well. I can't, can't complain. Had a, had a pretty good Sunday. Um, actually went on a, a hundred mile bike ride earlier today with some friends. So <laughs> that was good. A hundred um, miles. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been biking a bunch with Grant Rogers and Jake Ritter and Jake's actually, he's training for an Ironman right now. And so, uh, Grant and I have kind of like, informally been helping him train and over i don't know probably the last like maybe six weeks every sunday we've been going out on a long ride together and we just progressively you know started at like 55 miles and then 65 70 80 and then today was 100 um and so that was uh that was an experience <laughs> um, that, that completely shifts the type of bike riding it is because you know someone goes on a 15 20 minute ride mm -hmm. it's you're just in the next you might be in the next town over or something like that right right yeah you guys are pushing it to where it's like a long car road trip when you're I mean, done with it yeah so if uh I'm, I'm trying to think of like all right if you remember from your time down here in Austin, like you're driving up 35, you know, you hit like Pflugerville, which is probably, I don't know, 10 minutes up 35. Then you hit Round Rock, which is, I don't know, 20 minutes. And then you, there's Georgetown, which is like past Round Rock. It's probably a good like 30, 35 minute drive up 35. We were north of Georgetown today. <laughs> That's wild. That's like, I never, I made that drive maybe once or twice. Cause it was like, dude, I don't really want to make that drive right no, now. No, I mean, I, and you I, guys did it on bikes. Yeah. And dude, I mean, we, 
you and me made the drive one time because we both went to Round Rock Donuts. I remember that. And I remember oh. thinking, like, even though these donuts are great, the drive, I don't know if it's worth it. <laughs> so for, for everybody listening, Round Rock Donuts, their main attraction, and there's something different about Texas Donuts. They have a yellowy sheen to them that you don't yeah. see anywhere else. And yeah. they're absolutely delicious. And Round Rock had the one, it was a one pound donut, right? Yeah, it's a, I still actually have a picture on my phone of you holding the one pound donut uh, right before you uh, jumped into it to start ripping it apart. Actually. <laughs> uh, to be young and swimming 7K a day again. <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I picture the I, I can picture the image in my head. I think I have wicked swimmer hair and like really ratty sweats on. Because... Yeah, yeah, it's I think it's. To call them sweats might be uh that might be an overstatement. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like your your phase where you were dressing in like seemingly uh like olive drab colors and like gray, just oversized old anything. And I think you're wearing like an olive long sleeve shirt and maybe some gray sweatpants <laughs> from like high school or something like that. Yeah. Probably, dude, I did not know how to dress myself in college. <laughs> I know I'm not alone in this. No, um, no, I think, I think we're all there at one point or another. And I know in that time period, it's not my fault entirely, despite being kind of a schlub. Because in other years, I was a schlub, but our team sweats weren't charcoal. Okay. All of our clothing yeah. was charcoal that year. So so I ended up that's, wearing that's true. Just, I had an extremely drab wardrobe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean you look at my wardrobe now, it's a little more sharp, but guess what color it is? It's a lot of grays, <laughs> a lot of greens, a little bit of navy now, but it ain't much different, man. Hey man, let's not get too crazy. Throwing throwing some blues and navy in there. Whew. Yeah. Multiple multiple non-neutral colors. <laughs> So when you're not biking ten states over, um, yeah, yeah. What what else have you been up to these days? How's uh, how's the coaching been? Oh, it's been great. I mean, it's been um, you know I think for everyone, it it was a major adjustment. Um, obviously, at the beginning of the whole pandemic and and the coronavirus situation, and um, once we got back onto campus, which was like the end of August, and we got back in our pool. Um, you know, we have some very, very strict protocols at, at the university, um, in terms of how we're, uh, entering buildings, you know, what we have to do with, with our mass protocol, uh, filling out daily questionnaires before you come to campus and, um, just a lot of do's and don'ts for, uh, essentially how to, how to live in today's day and age, right. With, with the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so, that was, um, I think that that was took took a little getting used to for everyone, you know, summers, coaches, staff. Um, but I think the the really cool thing that we all got to see was, um, you know, just the resiliency that that we as a species can have when uh, your normal gets completely shifted and everything kind of goes one eighty. But how we've all kind of adapted really well to it. And now what seemed like such a foreign concept and seemed like such a pain, uh, maybe a few weeks ago or a few months ago is now it's just second nature. Right. 
we really have a way of adapting when it's down to the the fabric of our existence and the systems that govern our day-to-day life. Yeah, exactly. Good and, good way of putting that. And I imagine um, you said you've been pretty impressed so far with the ability to adapt. It sounds like you're talking about your swimmers who, you know, the average college swimmer, especially at the University of Texas, um, you know, college kid, kind of doofy. <laughs> and, you know, these are the same guys that can be idiots from time to time. And, and I mean that in a loving way because we were all idiots in college. Of course. But then you see them in these situations and you see, because um, you coach a men's team, the type of men that they are. Yeah. And their ability to adapt and still push through and keep working towards their goals. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, really one of the most impressive things that I've seen from that side of things over the last few weeks and, and few months is how good of a job our seniors have done with uh, really spearheading the uh, the charge to make sure that we have complete buy-in with the team, you know, and making sure that everyone's on the same page and that they all understand what's at stake here. Because um, I think with the where we are with the the pandemic and the virus you know, you don't even necessarily need to get it right to have for it to have an adverse effect on your on your athletic career or your team or your season, because, you know, essentially, if you get contact traced, so if you were in contact with someone that tested positive, and even if you've never tested positive, um, you're going to still have to quarantine for two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, <laughs> that, that's a, you know, you're, you're not swimming, you're not lifting, you're not coming into contact with anyone. Um, and so I was really impressed with how some of our seniors, especially like Chris Staka have been very vocal almost every week about just making sure that everyone knows that we've got to take care of each other and we've got to make sure that we realize that (laughs) we may feel like it's an inconvenience to us personally, but, um, the whole, the whole program is at stake and the whole team is, is in this together because one person maybe not taking something super seriously can have adverse effects on the whole program, um, our season, you know, not to mention Eddie. Right. Um, and so they've done a really, really good job of that. And kind of like you referenced a few minutes ago, you just get to see what kind of character, uh, the team has and it's, it's really impressive to be able to uh, see how mature some of these guys can be in, in this adverse situation. I want to, I want to pin down one specific thing you said, because it sounds like the most important part is this could have a really adverse effect on a team, right? People Mm -hmm. could, people could take the inconvenience and the, what it's done to upend their day-to-day life. And there could be discord. There could be people questioning, do I really need to be doing this? I'm a college kid. I deserve more than this. Right. And your seniors, the people who, you know, they hold the culture and the, the leadership of the team kind of within themselves, Uh them setting the example and being all in on doing everything right. I feel like you're, it seems like you guys lean on that a lot to help, help drive and steer the ship. 
Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, because you um, and Eddie could tell them till you're blue in the face. Hey, you got to be safe, but they have to follow suit. Exactly. No, and I think you hit the nail on the head with that. And uh, you know, I I, I'm sure you can. You probably have anecdotes, and you can speak from experience because you obviously have have been through it on the team as well. But one of the things that I think. Eddie has always been great about and Chris and just the Texas program in general is um, placing a certain level of independence on the guys and giving them a lot of accountability to, you know, to borrow your term, like steer the ship. Right. And, and to realize that um, everyone on the team has a role to play and everyone on the team has the ability to affect change uh, you know, whether it's positive or negative, right? I mean, obviously as, as coaches, we're, we're hoping that everyone is going in the same direction with that and making sure that it's all positive. Um, but, um, that's something that we, we place a lot of emphasis on making sure the guys are, uh, are leading and bringing the team in the right direction. Cause like you said, I mean, Eddie and I, we could have, we have team meetings every day about it, right? I mean, we could hop on Zoom and remind them, and, and we do, right? I mean, we we definitely remind them a lot. Uh, it's because, like Eddie says, you know, if you want if, if you want uh, kids to do something, you got to make sure you're telling them a lot. Um, but I think it goes a lot further when it's coming from the the seniors or the upperclassmen on the team. Um, and I think, you know, they're, they're probably outspoken about it because they're also the ones who they lost their NCAAs last year. Right. I mean, and they lost a year of eligibility and they lost a year, uh, that, uh, meant a lot to them. So I think that they want to make sure that we're doing everything we can, um, to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think this highlights, and I'd love for you to go into this. It highlights kind of the structure of the average, although I would say the Texas swimming team is not average. Um, Just the majority of college swimming teams where the coaches talk to the team as a whole and man to man, every person is, you know, it is egalitarian and everyone is on the same footing and no one's better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to kind of a soft chain of command, it seems like you guys right. count on the older guys to take your message and strengthen and buttress it for the younger guys to follow along as well. Like it's not an, an immediate dispersion from you guys straight to the entire team as one. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, you know, I think as a, to, to, to have a successful team, to have a su- successful program period, you know, whether it's swimming, whether you're coaching men or women, whether it's, any other sport, I think you've got to have buy-in from the team and you've got to have buy-in from the leaders in the locker room. Right. And they've got to, they've got to be on the same page because they're the ones who are going to be able to um, really make sure that everyone's on the same page going forward. Um, And I think that in a lot of ways, you know, the, the younger guys on the team, especially if you're a freshman, I mean, you can attest to this, like walking into the the UT locker room as a freshman and you're looking at guys who are juniors and seniors on the team who are NCAA champions, who are Olympic 
gold medalists or Olympians or world record holders, right? And those are the guys that you're going to look at um, and say, oh man, like I want to do what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to do, want to follow them because what they have done has given them this opportunity to be great in this, in the pool. And uh, the guys on the team are going to probably listen to them more and have their thoughts, uh, the leader's thoughts in the forefront of their brain a lot more than probably they would uh, having Eddie and Maya's thoughts at the forefront of their brain, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense that again, you guys can talk to your blue in the face, but there's, there's this larger than life um, persona without even seniors, maybe even realizing it are upperclassmen or captains or yeah. just leaders on the team. They have this outside inf outsized influence on younger kids because they've already walked the path. Right. And right. so if they're falling in line with you guys, then the younger guys are falling in line with you guys as well. Right. Because it's this combo of them being in the trenches with them and doing it with them. But they've been there before. And so they're doing it because they choose to do it and because they've done it before and know it's the right thing to do. Yeah. As opposed to the new guys where it's a new experience and they're testing out, do I listen or not? Yeah, I, exactly, exactly. And I think that one of the unique things about our program is that, you know, you can trace back this really, it's a really wild lineage when you think about it. But I remember uh, Chris telling this to me at one point, it always stuck with me as so much stuff that he has told me has. But, <laughs> um, you know, I remember him saying something to the effect of like, you know, you have someone who walks into the team as or walks onto the team as a freshman and look at who their seniors are. Right. And so like, let's take, let's take this year's class, for example, right. You have someone who walks on the team and all of a sudden they are learning how to be a Texas Longhorn swimmer and diver from uh, Austin Katz, right. Who um, learned it from, John Shevitt, who learned that from Townley Haas, who learned it from uh, Jack Conger or Joe Schooling or Will Lacone, who learned it from Jimmy Fegan, who learned it from, uh, you know, the, the lineage keeps going down the line and it's just a who's who until you get to, you know, P Brendan Hansen, Pearsall, Crocker, Josh Davis, um, and all the way down until, you know, really the genesis of it back in 1978, right? Um, yeah. I mean, we just, you just spanned three, four unbroken decades just by hopping back senior classes. Right, right. And um, I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty special, uh, pretty special thing when you're able to kind of trace it all the way back and you realize that, you know, even though we're in different decades, uh, there's something that there's a common thread and a common theme that connects all Texas Longhorn swimmers and divers. Um, and it allows us all to, you know, you can be dropped in a room with guys that swam 20 years before you and quickly bond over 
similar stories and have each have everyone in the room, you know, in stitches laughing about jokes that Eddie has said and how, you know, they may, may or may not be funny and how <laughs> he's been using the same one since like 1982 or something. Right. But <laughs> right. And they're not funny and yet hilarious in their own way. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a shared consciousness that has grown outside Thanks. of any individual person. There you go. That that's actually, that's a great way of putting it. Um, and 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 being a part you and me both being a part of that collective consciousness everyone that's listening to this has a bigger thing that they're a part of and when it's something that you're happy to be a part of you can like you said you can walk into any room and it's like the first couple layers of unfamiliarity with a new person are just wiped away clean right yeah exactly exactly that's a really good way of putting that as well yeah and so to take everyone back, because I kind of want to chart your story from the beginning in Texas. Yeah. Um, you have been there as long as pretty much everyone, anyone not named Eddie Reese or Chris Kubik. And that I want to take us back to when you first decided to go there uh, nine years ago now, right? And I guess the process has started a little bit before that, but you were swimming at Boston University. Yep. And you wanted to make a change. I want yeah. to know what what went in what went through your mind what inspired Texas and just take me through that that time period and what was going through your mind. Yeah, so I mean I guess to to tell that story I got to I got to back up a little bit further but like you know my my dad's a, a swim coach and up in New York and um I I got into the sport of swimming super late but um, my dad had served on some like national team staffs and had been on some international teams with Eddie. And so, uh, I always kind of, he would tell me some stories about like the Texas guys on trips and Eddie on trips. And, um, obviously, you know, I'd read like swimming world magazine, you know, when it got sent to my house as a kid and even not being a swimmer, uh, through most of my life, like I'd always, read about Texas winning NCAAs and um, obviously knew Pearsall and Brendan and Crocker and uh, guys like that. And I kind of had it in my head that it'd be super cool to go to the University of Texas. Um, and this is, I'd pretty much never been, well, I'd been out of the state of New York, but I never stepped foot in Texas, you know, never been to Austin you know, this was just like a little kid essentially being like, oh yeah, I want to grow up and be a fireman, right? Like, oh, yeah, I want to go swim at Texas. It sounds cool. They got a really unique mascot, um, really unique color, you know, that I feel like every college team, every college is, it's blues, it's reds, it's, you know, whites, burn orange, no other, no other school has that. So I thought that was cool because it, it made them stand out even more. Mm-hmm. Um and I ended up getting into swimming uh, as like a, I guess a freshman in, in, in high school, I started swimming. Um, and then sophomore year, I started swimming more seriously, like year rounds, my dad's team. Um, and wanted to, like, I, I tried to go to Texas out of high school. Essentially, my dad talked to Eddie and was like, 
hey, you know, can my son walk on? And Ed was like, he is not fast enough. And I, you know, I, I was not fast enough at all. So I went to BU and um, went there, not, not with the intention of ever trying to transfer. You know, I went there um, because there was a new head coach there that my, my dad knew, uh, Bill Smythe, who was a really great summer at, I think, the University of Virginia when he was in college. And they just built a new pool. And it was a good, it was a good fit for me in terms of it was good academics. It was still in the Northeast. So, you know, I was somewhat close to home, which, you know, I wasn't sure I was ready to move like halfway across the country anyway. And then um, it was also just a good fit in terms of my my talent level, my ability level with the sport, right? Um, so I went to BU and and really just didn't didn't love the experience. I I loved the guys on the team, like we clicked really really well, and we were super super close. But um, I wasn't sure after my freshman year that I I wanted to go back, but I figured I'd give it one more year. Um, but after my sophomore year, I knew that I definitely wanted to, to change, uh, something. And so I actually took a year off and moved back to New York, moved back into my house, trained with my dad's team. So I took like a red shirt year, um, with the really just trying to get faster. See, wanted to see how much time I could drop and how fast I could get. I was taking some classes in, in New York City um, just to kind of stay in the swing of things with um, with school because I felt like if I had took taken a year off completely, I, I might not have made it back to the <laughs> to, to college. Right? Were you um, were you holding Texas in your mind as you're going through this process, or was it just I need to change and I'm going to best prepare for it? So I I would say that it was Texas was definitely in my mind. Um, but it wasn't, I never thought it was a realistic possibility. You know, I mean, I did not actually think that I would ever have the opportunity. So it was one of those like, oh, wow, you know, if I drop a ton of time, then maybe I'll be able to walk on. Um, but I'm not going to like necessarily pursue that really heavily just because, I don't want to get my hopes up, you know, like I need to be trying to be realistic with things and make sure that I'm kind of casting a wide net. Um, and so fast forward, uh, you know, almost six or nine months or whatever, and things kind of just clicked. Um, I did drop, dropped a bunch of time. Um, I came down to Austin for, uh, for a visit with Eddie, um, and pretty much asked him if, if, I'd be able to walk on. He said, yeah, we will have a spot for you if you want to come down. And so I think I was in Austin for like maybe 12 hours. Um, I really didn't even see campus or anything. Um, and I actually within, uh, probably two days I was like, all right, well, I'm taking this opportunity. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but let's just go for it. Um, I ended up at the end of the summer packing up my car, drove from uh, from New York to, to Austin, really not having you – know, I, I hadn't met any of the guys on the team pretty much. Um, and which, I think is, I had like, Which is nuts considering the average process for the college swimmer. 
you're just you're you're For going sure. in blind no recruiting trip no you know 15 facebook messages like hey man like can't wait to have right. you down here in austin I, yeah i think i had actually i had exchanged some facebook messages with jimmy because when i had decided that i was gonna come down or transfer um i was asking him like hey where should i even stay you know like i i don't know i don't even know where the dorms on campus are where like should should i stay on campus should i live off campus what do people even do <laughs> um and so uh <laughs> it was just you know it, you look back on it and it's kind of comical just in uh in the sense of how unprepared i was for it um but it was something that like like i said the the stars kind of aligned with it and it was you know it was a dream right to be able to come to texas and and um it was something that i had had in my mind for years i never really thought was something that was was super likely to happen um and was probably in almost every scenario was like a pie in the sky uh situation for me that was like yes that would be incredible but it's not ever actually going to happen and so um to have to have it happen that way was was awesome and i remember um we're walking to the pool for like the first practice and ended up in a lane with like Brendan and Kathleen Hersey, you know, and was just like <laughs> super scared and nervous again. Cause I knew no one. Um, and a, a, a couple I, people who were about to end up on the U S Olympic team the next year. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, obviously Brendan's reputation preceded, preceded himself. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and then I think like within a few days, I, I can't remember. I think it was like the first practice I went to. Um, I didn't even know the locker room code, and <laughs> I was so shy. I didn't even want to ask anyone for it. So I actually went into the general locker room after practice to change in there. Oh my god! And a bunch of guys. I can't remember exactly who it was. I think one was Jackson and one was Neil and maybe someone else like came into the into the general locker room and were like dude what are you doing and i was like i honestly have no idea i don't know anyone i don't even know the locker room code and they were like dude you're on the team get your ass in here you know and these are <laughs> just for clarification these are seniors who are on the team at the time and you transferred in as a junior right 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 and so coming back to real quick going back to what we were saying before um, that senior leadership, it was probably really important for you to, as being a shy person who didn't know anybody, that the guys who were driving the ship that year kind of came up to you and were like, dude, like, you're one of us. Yeah. And, you know, I think that uh, I could have just as easily, you know, I, I was I was the slowest guy on the team, you know, by a pretty healthy margin. And like, it was one of those scenarios where, I, I didn't know what to expect with it, but I certainly like wouldn't have been surprised if everyone just ignored me and were just like, oh, he's just a walk-on or something like that. And like, yeah, let him use the general locker room. And so having that be like pretty much my first exposure to the guys, um, I think that was like a very, you know, in some ways it was like a seminal moment, right? Of being like, wow, okay. So 
this has already exceeded my expectations. <laughs> and these guys are so much kinder than I would have thought because um, they have no reason to be nice to me. They don't even know me. They probably, I mean, heck, the, the, way, <laughs> the way I know things uh, from the other side of the deck, I'm sure Eddie didn't even tell, him, tell them that I was going to be on the team. You know? <laughs> like, I probably just showed up and they're like, who is this guy? And Kubik was probably like, oh yeah, he's a transfer. He's on the team now. His name's Wyatt. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, knowing Kubik, even if we hadn't found out, the moment that he realized that no one told us about you, he probably reeled off like 10 fun facts that he knew about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And those, <laughs> when we look back, those little quiet moments that you kind of had to yourself, because yes, Jackson or Neil, honestly, they probably don't remember that moment, right? Right. Those little quiet moments can have such an impact. Oh, with, without a doubt. I mean, I think, and that's one of those, it's one of those really incredible facets of life. I think that you can, I don't know, sometimes I, I think about, I think about the bigger picture a lot of times, and this is something that I've thought about a bunch, but how it's, it's like you just described, right? You can have an interaction with someone that for for you, right, for Austin Serhoff might just be a completely normal way that you approach someone or a certain situation. You know, like you walk into a coffee shop and there's someone sitting there by themselves and you lock eyes instead of walking by them you know, you say, Hey, what's going on? Have a great day or something like that. And for them, that could make their, that could make their day, right. That could make their week. That could be, that could have been the one thing that they needed to get over a really horrible time in their life was just someone acknowledging them. Right. Or, um, to take it further, you know, a situation, uh, like, like I was in where, you know, you don't know anyone and you're really unsure of, of the group that you walked into and you don't know how things are going to go and you're shy and you're nervous and you're scared. Um, but three guys held out an olive branch, which to them is just the way that they, that that's the people they are, you know, and that's the way that they approach situations. So for them, it's just the way you treat people. Um, but for the person who is having that action done to them, it can be an incredibly, um, in, incredibly formative moment, right? With with their their life, depending upon where they are, or um, growing up, or it could have been the thing that maybe helped them get out of a, a horrible a horrible spot with where they've been mentally. Um, and yeah, so I think that's that's a really really great point that you made and you brought up with that yeah and it, i promise to people listening i'm not trying to toot our collective horn about texas swimming i just have to <laughs> pull back to one of my own experiences real quick you mentioned that you had heard from your dad because he was on these teams with eddie and eddie had all these swimmers on these international teams that the texas swimmers were just great guys so right my coach in high school his name was paul yetter and he actually, I talked to oh, Paul. Yeah, nice. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh. nice mutual contact. But Paul was my high school, he was my high school club coach for three years. And so he was the one guiding me through my recruiting process. And he had been on a couple national teams. It sounds very familiar to your story. 
And I asked him, I said, Paul, so what do you think about X, Y, and Z program? I'm not, I won't name the other programs, but not because it, it, you know, I heard anything bad, but what he said was, man, like every trip that I go on, the Texas guys are just awesome. And, and I'm not saying that about me. That's just what I heard as awesome sort of high school kid. And I was like, cool. Well, mm-hmm. I want to hang out with guys who are awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then, <laughs> so that was the parallel to your moment hearing from your dad. And then the little moment where I felt like I belonged um, was I got to have it a little earlier because I had a recruiting trip. But... Uh, Ricky Barons, who at the time when he when he was recruiting me was Olympic gold medalist. I was struggling with a decision to pick between two schools. And I was very late in the process. I think I was like three days away from when my NLI was due. And he took 45 minutes to talk to me on the phone. Now looking Mm -hmm. back, I realize I was pretty I was a pretty desirable recruit. But everyone listening knows when you see Olympic gold medalists, future senior, if I'm on the team with them, NCAA champion, American record holder, is calling me on the phone, you think you're it's yeah. being beamed down from like a higher place. But to them, it's, mm-hmm. well, that person is as good as I was in high school. I want them on the swim team. Obviously, I'm going to give them a mm-hmm. call and be a good person to them and take them through and help them with this process. Right. And yeah, so that exactly. difference between the two, just like you said, like, well, maybe because it was a long phone call. Ricky might remember it to this day, but I remember where I was. I stopped my car because I was driving home from swim practice and I pulled <laughs> over to talk to him. And I was like, well, uh, lock and load. Let's do this. <laughs> like I, I went to Texas after that. <laughs> so does that, shape, um, does that shape how you carry yourself now as a coach? Like, Do you ever think about that moment where you were extended a sense of belonging? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that um, it's it really shows how shows how important um, how you treat people is, right? And I think it also, to me, you, you know, I, I didn't make the connection at the time, but I think it's that coupled with a, a bunch of other experiences on the team with guys on the team. I mean, it, it, it goes to show how, um, how important just little interactions can be and just reaching out olive branches can be for people and, and for their lives. And I think it also was something that um, it, it, it transcends the sport. Right. And I know a lot of coaches talk about this and Eddie talks about this, about how like, you know, swimming is, yeah, we are, we're some coaches and we're trying to get people to go faster, but we're also, um, trying to help, trying to help young men who are in a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A A pivotal time. Yes. There you go. A pivotal time in their lives where, um, you know, we're trying to help them in the pool, but also just in life. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that, um, I realized at a early point from being on the team and also coaching alongside Chris and Eddie was that there is, I mean, swimming is obviously important and that is for, for 
some coaches it's in your job description but um there's also a lot more to it right and i think the the best coaches in the in the world and in the country are ones that are able to do both of those right mm-hmm. um and it, you know it makes me think of like i remember cubic telling me one time like i asked him when i was when i was a volunteer coach uh like <laughs> like some of the best some of the best memories i have as of, of as, as a volunteer coach were Tuesday and Thursday mornings because those were Chris's mornings and I'd go to morning practices all the mornings Tuesdays and Thursdays I would just sit with Chris and we would just talk shop right and it could be like anything from uh relationships to family to life to football to the team to coaching philosophy and theory to whatever and um he always had a ton of incredible insights as as i mean you know chris always has um pretty pretty incredible insights to almost any situation and i remember i asked him at one point um you know what do you think makes a successful coach and do you think that you've been successful and almost without missing a beat he was like well you know look the the winning is nice and and breaking records that's awesome. Medals, those are great. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and say those aren't fun. Mm-hmm. But he said that the way he gauges success is that if he is still getting calls or texts from guys that he coached at Texas after they have graduated, you know, and they're calling them, calling Chris with news about them getting engaged or married or wedding invitations or announcements about children or just reaching out for advice. Um, He was like, that's, that's how I know that I've been successful because it means that you have affected people in a much deeper way than just getting them to swim fast, getting them to swim fast from one end of a pool to another, right? You've, you've helped them in some way and you've gained their trust and they respect you enough to, um, to really value your opinion and the, the, you're in their corner for, for life. And he was like, that to me is what a successful coach is. And I think that was at a point when I was still like, Oh man, coaching is just about trying to get everyone to swim as fast as humanly possible. And that's it. Right. What's the, um, what's the secret sauce set that I can put together it, to make people it, faster. Exactly. Yeah, we all exactly. start there. Yep. Right. And that was like a, that was like a zinger right like my head spun and I was like holy crap that is it's it's so simple right but I think it's something that is it's lost on a lot of people um and I think from that point on was uh you know I kind of shifted um my thoughts on what made what would make me successful you know And, and so I've incorporated that I've always tried to incorporate that um into how I treat guys on the team and, and, you know, how I make myself available for guys on the team mm-hmm. and, you know, whether it's sitting down after practice to talk about things that have nothing relate, nothing to do with swimming or, or late night phone calls about that stuff as well, or helping them through tough times with, with their families or their relationships. Um, because uh, at the end of the day, that's, I think that's what it's all about. Right. I mean, it's, you're trying to, 
help these these young men become successful in all aspects. Well, college is going to be pivotal to them no matter what. And you could either a you could a either be a part of that pivotal experience or not. And if you are, then you're going to radiate throughout decades of their life, probably throughout their yeah. entire lives. Right. And then B, are you going to radiate in a positive or a negative way? Yeah, that's that's a really good point as well because you know you can you can do both. You know, like you can be, uh, you can have a a very very lasting negative impact on someone, right? But that's obviously, as a coach, I would hope that that's not your goal, right? <laughs> no, but a a coach could, without realizing it even a good person, right? Without even saying someone's a bad person for doing this, they could get caught up in how much can I, how much can I wring out of this swimmer in times, which, which is, that is your stated job as a coach, according to, you know, if you had to literally write down your job in a sentence, it's the success of this swim team. And that can be measured in times, titles, Olympians, gold medals. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, my on on that front you know my hot take is that i i think maybe it's not that have a take but um i i think most most coaches are are stuck in that you know i think in this day and age with you know whether you want to chalk it up to pressure they get from uh ADs or alums or pressure they put on themselves or only wanting to, you know, having the express goal of, man, I just, I just want to be on an Olympic team. Like I want to be an Olympic coach. Um, I think a lot of coaches lose sight of the fact that, and, and it's like you said, I, I don't necessarily think they're bad people. I don't think they are, you know, it's not some evil um, conspiracy theory to try and like ruin, ruin people's, kids lives or anything but i think that they sometimes lose sight of the fact that what we're dealing with is is people you know and and take it a step further we're dealing with really kids you know i mean even though they especially on the guy's side like a lot of them look like grown men (laughs) you know they're between the ages of 18 and 22 for the most part and they are still trying to figure out um, where they fit into the big picture of, of life, right? What they want to do, how they should act, how they should interact with people, um, what, uh, what is positive, what is negative, what's beneficial. Um, and so I think a lot of coaches kind of get lost on, or they, they lose sight of the fact that it's not just, we're not just dealing with times. You know, it's not just some black and white, like, all right, you either score points or you don't, or you drop time or you don't, or, um, you know, it's all about winning conferences or winning NCAAs or not. Um, it's not just success or failure, right. In a, in a completely binary sense, um, because we're, we're dealing with people who are really complicated and really complex and everyone's going through their own things and everyone has their own, um, their own issues and hangups. And, and I think that, uh, one of the things that I've always tried to do is make sure to try and understand everyone, right. And understand where they're coming from and what they've gone through or going through and, um, make sure to never 
to never turn someone into just like a two-dimensional object, right? Of like, oh, well, how many points can you score for us at NCAAs? Right. What can, the, <laughs> the, the swimming LinkedIn page, if you will. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I have to I have to push back on both of us here just because in a little bit in a way that I think will give you some space to clarify one thing because we also mentioned that most programs it's a pressure put on coaches because that program's on the rise they're trying to build something uh the donors are saying we need to get here in five years and on top of that we're in a capitalist society coaches are trying to move up in the world right oh yeah and so the pushback the only thing i'm going to push back on is texas men's swimming and diving team is that's one of the places where you end up right like i'll talk to kids from literally anywhere and they'll talk about yeah you know i had this coach this year and like i had really and by the way had great experiences in college so let me just say that right there but I had this coach this year and this coach that year. And this time, this time the team was like going through a lot of different stuff. And we went to yeah. this meets that year. And then like we got, you know, last in our conference this year. But then by the time I was a senior, we were like third in the conference. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, for those who maybe aren't entirely 100% familiar with Texas men swimming and diving, same coach for, check me on this, Wyatt, 42 years now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Same assistant coach from when? 1981 until 2016? Well, I think it was... Nah, so it was like... 78, I think, is when Cubic came to Texas with Ed. Right. And then they were together for maybe like, I don't know, five or six years. And then Chris had like a change of careers for maybe like two or three years. And then he came back, but I think it was, it was like 36 years old, 37. Yeah. And so all this to say 37 years. And in that time, the most successful swimming team in the history of swimming. So between, when did you say cubic came back? 80. I think it was like late eighties, 88 or something, 87, something like that. Let's call it, let's call it 87. So between 1987 and 2020, it's been established. There was 14 NCAA titles won, and the conference wasn't lost um, even before the University of Texas joined the new Big 12. Hasn't lost since then. It's been right. 40 straight Big 12 titles. So there's not really a lot of external worry or pressure for the Texas swim team to yeah. where you know there isn't even this lean put on you and Eddie as coaches and there is because you guys hold yourselves to a standard and I guess I want to know how does that compare like because Texas Texas swimming is it's the exception not the norm in that way Mm -hmm. and how does that affect the goals of the program relative to what you may have seen somewhere else or the flow of the program I guess I mean, do you guys have to create your own goals? Are you talking to the athletic director about it? Are you talking to alums who are giving money to the program? Mm -hmm. And and are there even goals or are you guys just able to give off, um, you know, more broad stuff of I'm trying to impact this kid's life. I'm trying to make them faster. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that we don't necessarily have, you know, Del Conte is, 
he's big on having every wants to make sure every sports in the top 10. Um, but obviously for, for us, we're, you know, aiming higher than that. And really, I mean, we, we want to win NCAAs every year. You know I mean? There's, there, there's no, there's no two ways around that. I mean, that's obviously a goal, right? But I think Eddie always puts it really well. Um, when like asked about this or when we were talking to the guys about it and, we're we're fortunate in that we have we have the type of guys on our team and they're at a certain level where if every guy on the team can get a little bit faster then we're going to be pretty damn hard to beat at NCAA any, any given you know? year so it's almost like right it's almost like if instead of setting this extrinsic goal of like okay you know what it's it's NCAA's or bust, or it is the Olympics or bust, or it, it is a gold medal or bust. Um, because at the end of the day, like you know, we could have at an NCAA level, we could have the meat of our lives. But if another team is just a little bit better, you know, and they win, um, there's nothing we could have done about that, right? I mean, like if we end up walking out with hundred percent best times, but still get beat by another team, then we've done the best we humanly can do. Um, it's just that there was another team that was a little bit better. Right. And so I think the way we always approach it is to try and take it each individual and try and make each guy a little bit faster. Right. And do what we can to get, um, each swimmer and diver to be better every single year. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's not necessarily a, I would say it's a more holistic approach as opposed to just saying like, all we care about is swimming. Cause you know, I mean, you know, from, from being in the program that the, the school part of it is a big component and, um, also just the, the well-being part of it as well. And so, um, we don't ever want to get to the point where we're neglecting, those other um those other things to try and make a make it all about swimming all the time because i think that that's also a slippery slope where you know you know i think a lot of swimmers do that to themselves right where they put a lot of pressure on their own shoulders and they get mm-hmm. tunnel vision and i think you can do that for maybe small increments of time you know whether it's like leading into a big meet or maybe a few weeks or a few months at a time but what I've seen with more and more swimmers is that like it, they can develop this like tunnel vision that just becomes really unhealthy, right? Because it becomes all about swimming and they end up putting so much pressure on their own shoulders that everything becomes very binary where it's like, okay, I must succeed in this singular goal. And if I don't achieve that, then everything has been for naught. Um, and maybe you start neglecting like going on hikes, right. Or, or getting out into nature or going and taking pictures or creating art or, um, picking up other hobbies that is going to help you be like a well-rounded person. Um, and so, yeah, I think we, we obviously want to make sure that everyone's getting what they need to be 
fast in the pool, but we also don't want it to be at the neglect of, of everything else in their lives. And to add pressure, to add to the pressure part of it, you can also get hung up on team goals that some of the mechanisms of which are completely out of even your own control. Yeah, exactly. So to pull back to where we were when you first transferred and my own headspace, I definitely was in that tunnel vision of like swimming, Mm -hmm. right? And our team culture at the time very much so without anybody really kind of realizing it, but we would all feel it in that, what did I call it? The collective consciousness that I talked about. Yeah. Yep. was it was a absolutely a binary goal of NCAs or bust. And right. that wasn't something put on us by the coaches. But it was this thing that we were kind of grasping and kind of mm-hmm. like there was a lot there was this tense grasp that we had of like we got to win. Yeah, well it becomes this almost this unspoken thing, right? That like everything becomes geared towards that singular goal and then it becomes this very like yeah, it's it's this very binary. It's it's success or failure, and there there's nothing in between. You know, like there and then, is, and then yeah, if no but, one if no one feels direct control over helping to attain that success, they don't know how they can contribute to it. Even yeah. someone who may have outsized influence on contributing to that success. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and so now pulling it back around, a little little coming around thing. Uh, maybe that's the value of having a program that you guys have down there in Texas that you and Eddie do have a little bit of space that you don't have to check in with like dual meet victories or mm-hmm. are we going to win big 12s or right. are right. we going to get top 10 at NCAAs this year to make sure that we're on the athletic director's checklist of that, yep. that you can just say, give everyone a role and they can contribute in this way. Mm-hmm. And then the rest will take care of itself, as they say. Yeah. And that, and so that, and then now we tie it back. I'm going on a tangent here and I want you to come with me. Let's go. Going on the rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, actually a term that I've been obsessed with since Eddie said it to us for the first time. And you probably hear it all the time. I think it's become more of a thing that the swimmers say these days that you coach, but it's take care of yourselves, take care of your teammates take care of Texas and the rest will take care of itself. Right. Yeah. So how did, how was that idea for you? Cause you believe very much in that idea as well, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I believe it so much that I actually shaped a version of my, I actually shaped the conclusion of my wedding vows around that same template. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dang man. And that so is, that's wild. Well, it's true because you have to get your own oxygen mask first on the airplane. You mm-hmm. have to take care of you. Oh, yeah, that's a good connection right there. Because if you're taking care of someone else and then the greater entity while neglecting yourself, like you said, if you're in the vortex and you're in the home stretch of something big, you can do it. You can neglect yourself for a little bit and put other stuff aside. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you try to extend it for months and years, you kind of start yeah. to cleave away at yourself. Yeah, yeah, very true. And so seeing what you saw your first year, which was an awesome and impactful year for you, but you also saw a team that kind of had this interesting binary switch of success failure. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how that influences how you think of everybody just kind of taking care of themselves and how you speak to them about that when you coach them now. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that maybe without knowing it, uh, it definitely had a impact on how I view coaching and and what it's led me to at this point. But yeah, I mean, I I spent a lot of time talking to guys on the team about things that have nothing to do with swimming, <laughs> you know. And and it's I was having this conversation a very similar conversation with one of our guys last week uh, about some of these same topics and, and how um, I was talking to him about how like the, the same scenario of the tunnel vision and the pressure and how, you know, swimmers can neglect their themselves and their mental health and how there's good ways to decompress and bad ways, you know, and, I think a lot of swimmers, you've probably lived through this. I've lived through this where like, I remember thinking, okay, you know what? Recovery on like a Sunday would mean just never leaving my house, like taking three naps, uh, eating a crap ton of junk food and, you know, binge watching movies or playing video games for like six hours, yeah, and, right? And folding up and, in a super uncomfortable position that's bad for your back on the couch. It, Right, right, exactly, exactly, and you know, and, and housing a whole Domino's pizza or something and bread bites, um, <laughs> or a one pound round but, rock donut. Yeah, or a one pound round rock donut. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder which has more calories: one pound round rock donut, Domino's pizza. <laughs> well, the lard that they use in donuts in Texas that probably <laughs> that probably puts it over the Domino's pizza by a hair. That that's true. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, and how like. I mean, I remember thinking that that was the way to, that was the way you recovered. And, but then at the same time, getting to Monday and being like, wow, like, what did I do with my time? You know, I had like 36 hours between Saturday morning practice and, you know, essentially Sunday night. And how did I spend it? And um, I was talking to one of our swimmers about the same scenario where I, I'm, I'm a, a big believer now in taking time to like mentally reset by finding a hobby that you're passionate about or by finding something that gets you away from the sport and makes you more of a, more of a multidimensional person, you know? And so whether that's on a Sunday, I mean, down in Texas, you know, in Austin, when the weather is really great pretty much all year round, you know, it could be going for a hike in the green belt, right. With, with mm-hmm. some guys on the team, it could be going and, and sitting at Zilker and doing homework outside and just getting some vitamin D and hanging out in the sunshine and, and not sitting on your computer in your dark room all day, taking 12 naps. Um, <laughs> it, it could be you or know, playing, running a paddleboard. Or playing, Halo, or playing Halo for 12 hours without leaving the house ever. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, or it could be, you know, running a paddleboard and hanging out in the paddle on a paddleboard on a, on the river with, with guys on the team or with friends. Um, or, you know, a bunch of our guys on the team nowadays are pretty artistic. And so, you know, I know some of them, you know, grab a camera and go take pictures around town for an hour or two, or they paint or they, uh, create images on Photoshop, right. And, and, uh, do things like that. And I think that if you're able to do that, it, it just creates, it just gives you a lot of balance, right. Which I think nowadays, 
or especially in the last five years, you know, there's been such a, um, there's been such an uptick in like mental health issues that have kind of come to the forefront and have bubbled to the surface with, I mean, I think with everyone, but also, you know, elite athletes, especially. Um, and I think that it's, that's one great way to combat that, you know, because it, it broadens your horizons. It allows you to explore some different things. And in mm-hmm. that way, like when you inevitably, when, when your swimming career is over, you know, cause it, 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 it always is over at some point, you know, whether you're the greatest of all time or whether, you know, you're on an NCAA team or you're just swimming in college, um, it allows you to discover some, maybe some things you're passionate about. So when the sport is done, there is something for you to, to leapfrog to. And it's not just all of a sudden, okay, well, I've spent the last eight years of my life literally only caring about one thing and that's been swimming and now it's over and now I am lost, you know? And I think that's like a common occurrence with people in the sport as well. Yeah. You, you divvy up the pie chart of what you carry, care about a little bit more. Yes. So that when you lose one of the slices, it's not as impactful. Yeah. Actually, that's a really good way of, dude, you should, you should start like a business (laughs) where you, uh, (laughs) you listen to someone talk about something and then you create a really, really great, simple, easy to follow metaphor or analogy for it. <laughs> I think, I think that's, that's maybe your next business idea. Uh, well, I don't know <laughs> if it's a business idea, but I do consider myself the best in, in my family at writing greeting cards. And I, oh, you know, nice. So I think that's where I get that. I, that's where I can uh, use that, <laughs> that little talent in a, in a regular way. <laughs> Um, but you know, myself, I found podcasting, I found writing greeting cards as a hobby for myself, but I was someone whose pie chart was so women, right? Right. Yeah. And so, but that was also par for the course, or at least it felt like it was for me when I was swimming at the time was we're thinking about NCAs or at least I am thinking about NCAs and I'm thinking about nothing else. Yeah. Or I'm thinking about Olympic trials or nationals or what have you. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about nothing else. And so the guys on the team are only going to do what they're shown to do. So have you noticed a shift in guys balancing themselves out? Because you, again, you've been there for nine straight years and you have been on that deck essentially every single day since 2011. So what are some of the major shifts you've seen? (laughs) It's an awesome thought in a way, because you are now one of the main through lines that kind of holds everything that's happened in your mind, right? If you've ever seen the movie, or not seen the movie, read the book, uh, The Giver. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like you're going to be like a giver for Texas one day, or you are right now. And so what have you seen, I guess, that has been... I'd like to mainly focus on a, on a positive shift because you said that you've seen elite athletes dealing with a lot more these days. But in that same stretch, Texas Swimming has won four, four NCAA titles from 2017 or 2015 through 2018. Right. And that was right in that stretch that you were talking about where elite athletes started dealing with more pressure and mental health issues. So what shifts happened between, say, when you got to Texas and when you took over as assistant coach from Chris Kubik in 2016 and then onward through now, 
that has created a place where guys can thrive and flourish. Um, maybe divvy up their pie charts like we talked about a little bit more strategically. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's, I feel like it's hard to pinpoint like one thing that has changed and has had those sort of consequences. But um, I guess like for, for myself and I feel like for the way that I've approached things the last few years, I, I put a lot of, emphasis on um or try to put a lot of emphasis on on individuality and letting guys maybe just express themselves in different ways and i I know that like you know we've we've changed the program a little bit in certain aspects where like we don't have as strict of a dress code anymore when we fly like we still wear um still wear suit and tie or you know slacks and a blazer and stuff like that but we don't have to be clean shaven anymore and we have more guys that you know rock out with some earrings or something like that uh when we fly on on flights i'd just like to say for the record that means i was ahead of my time (laughs) (laughs) because i definitely showed up without shaving once or twice and i caught heat for it but oh i i'm sure (laughs) I am now vindicated in the, in the aftermath and I feel great about it. Yeah. And so we've, we've had some guys that have uh, definitely loosened up or taken to loosening up the dress code uh, and some of the requirements with, with travel. And, and I think it's something where I try and walk like a fine line between uh, individuality and tradition. You know, I think that there's a lot of, emphasis to put on the tradition of the team and and to honor those that have come before us and to obviously you know there's a a plethora of of really awesome traditions that we have and that have been in the program for so long but i also think that um it's worthwhile to kind of grow in certain ways and um i think with just maybe with kids nowadays, this makes me feel old saying this, right? Like referencing like, Oh, kids nowadays. Um, <laughs> sure. Go put continue grandpa Wyatt. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think like kids nowadays, they're used to uh, having a certain amount of individuality and, and being able to express themselves in certain ways. Um because of, you know, because they grew up in, in the internet age, right? And, and social media and the ability to create avatars on um, Xbox Live and on PlayStation and stuff like that. And so I think you've got to be able to adapt as things move forward. And so I think one of the things that we've definitely changed over the past couple of years is, is maybe not having such a strict way of like, all right, this is exactly how a Texas swimmer diver looks or acts. And we've definitely kind of widened the spectrum a little bit, you know? Um, and I think a lot of guys have taken to that in, in different ways, but um, it seems like there's more, more creative types on the team nowadays than when we were probably on the team. Um, and guys who are, looking for creative outlets and, and are really 
Um, you know, whether it's they spend spend free time, like I was talking about earlier, taking photos, creating creating uh, vlogs, going on hikes, uh, doodling, charcoal drawings, um, making documentaries. You know, things that like it sounds crazy, but I guess it makes me um, uh, makes me a proud grandpa, right? In the <laughs> sense that um, I you know, when I think of myself in college, like I was nowhere near mature enough to do the stuff that they do nowadays and to um, probably have the self-confidence to be able to like maybe walk my own path and do something that's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just makes me like really proud of the team and the guys on the team um, when I-, I see what they're doing outside of the pool, you know, and they send me, pictures of, of paintings they're working on or they send me snippets of documentaries they're doing or they send me um you know new drawings that they spent a weekend drawing and that's just it's it's really cool because it also get it allows me to get to know the guys outside of just the the pool and you are able to kind of develop a relationship that's you know it's not just all right 10 100s and 105 go you know, it's more about like, hey, how was your weekend? You know, what'd you do? I, that was a sweet drawing that you posted. Talk, tell me about that. You know, like how long have you been working on it? What do you like about it? Where'd you get the inspiration for it? Um, and I think those are the connections that, I mean, bringing it back to like what Cubic had told me and, and one of the things that kind of shaped my coaching philosophy is those are the connections that uh, allow you to be involved in someone's life for more than just the four years uh, of a college career. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is awesome. I think that's such an amazing thing that you take that with you. And I want to focus on that because you have what you're talking about, which is your philosophy and you bring it onto the deck with you every day. And you use that to do what you can for these kids. And what I've always enjoyed about you, especially in the four years that you've been the assistant after you took over for Chris, mm-hmm. is you're you're real with me when I bring up like how cool it is what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? Like it could be a super easy thing to be like, oh, I don't know, it's nothing. But for you, when you, we talk, I'll be like, dude, it's super cool that you're doing this right now. Or, and you'll be like, yeah, so let me tell you about this really cool part of it. And I feel like you feel kind of the weight of your of your position and just go to go back to an a and b thing of choices coaches can make there's an a where you can throw that weight around and make people do stuff right mm-hmm. uh, you go do this and there's a b where you use your weight and you and you shoot positive it sounds like you do your best to shoot positivity out of it and i guess you know your presence on the deck you know your place um, as the assistant coach of a, a storied program, do do you am I making this up or do you feel that when you carry yourself on the deck and you are talking to guys about their documentaries or their weekends while you're also yeah. getting their times? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it is. Look, it, it's not lost on me at all, and <laughs> I think um, it when I first took over for Chris. I mean, to be perfectly honest, like it was crippling. Um, and I actually started like, I, I started to see a therapist uh, maybe 
a few months into the job because it was something that I felt like I couldn't escape from because I was always, always comparing myself to Chris. And I mean, you know, Chris, his shoes, they're, they're never going to be filled. Chris is a one of, is a one of a kind person, mm-hmm. right? He's a one um, of one. You shouldn't even step yeah. in the shoes in the first place. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. But I had them, I, I took that mistake of like, when I first walked into it, I was like, Oh my God, like I need to do everything that Chris would have done. You know, like what would Chris do in certain situations? I'm going to be, I'm going to honor him by trying to keep things status quo and do things the way he would have done things. Um, or, you know, if I was in a situation where I was having to make a decision thinking about, well, what would Chris do in this position? Right. Or like, how would he have approached this? And like I said, it was, it was crippling. Right. And I think that was the negative side of the, the coin of always being too aware maybe of like how fortunate I am, right. And how lucky I am and always trying to make sure that I am doing Chris, doing Eddie, doing Texas alums proud um, and making sure that I'm, you know, in so many words, just not screwing things up. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think at some point along the line, probably after the first year or so, it like, like I started be, well, I started becoming more comfortable, but I also started realizing that like, you know, I've got to be able to take some ownership as well and not compare myself to someone who's incomparable. Right. And, and, and not to, um, always try and do things the way Chris would have done things because Chris isn't coaching anymore, you know, and I've got to make sure that I'm maybe, putting my own flavor into the program because that's part of being a coach. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that coming from, from that standpoint, it's allowed me to, I don't know, maybe even have more respect for, um, for the job and for the, the magnitude of the job. And it's allowed me to get to a point now where, yeah, it's like, I, I take it seriously and it is something that I spend a lot of time working hard, working hard on. Um, but like you were referencing, I'm also, I'm also just enjoying it. Right. I'm, I'm doing my best to just take a step back every once in a while and be like, this is, this is damn cool. You know, I, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I'd be here, I would have said that you're actually crazy. Um, but the fact that I'm able to do this and I'm able to work with some of the best swimmers in the country and some of the best people I know and um, work, continue working with Eddie and, and still live in Austin and work at, you know, one of the best facilities in the, in the world. Um, it's something that I'm really fortunate for. And it is over the past probably two years, it's something that I've really made sure not to take for granted. Mm-hmm. And that was, in my opinion, that last bit was Chris's best quality. And as you have kind of shed away this need to, or this feeling that you had to kind of live up to him, 
I think that just from an outsider and a friend's perspective, it seems like the things that you learned from him have now really been allowed to shine through because Chris Kubik, you know, 30 plus years as a coach, multiple NCAA titles, Olympic team coach was always in awe of what he had at his disposal, even in the last couple years of his career mm-hmm. and was always unassuming about it and was always trying to make it the experience the best for everyone around him. And so even though you're not doing what you feel like is an impersonation anymore, now that you get to be yourself, now you're actually letting the best qualities that you learned from your mentor shine through in that you are now the one who is channeling, oh my God, this is awesome to everybody. Yeah. And you're doing it in your own way, which, you know, before we knew Kubik, before he was a mentor to you, he was just Chris Kubik guy also learning how to coach and starting out as an assistant to Eddie Reese at Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember, uh, uh, you know, you know, Sam Kendricks, right? I do. Greatest announcer in all of swimming. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and also just one of the greatest people like he, you know, I'll go to meets and when he's announcing and he always takes time to just check in with me and see how everything's doing, how everything's going and how I'm doing with things. And we always have some pretty candid and like open and honest conversations. And, um, there was one point where I I was telling him, I think this was in, it was in year one or two or something. And I was telling him some of these issues, right. That I've been having and, you know, comparing myself to Chris and feeling like I'm not doing a good job. And he, I remember him saying to me, you also got to realize that when you saw Chris, he was, he was a seasoned veteran, right? Like the, you're comparing yourself to someone who was, 34 to 36 years or 37 years in the job when you knew him right and he had probably seen everything you could see he had a ton of life experiences under his belt and he's been to the mountaintops multiple times um and you're just starting out and you're you know you're really not being fair to yourself you know because you are you know at the time i'm 26 or 27 and I'm like, oh man, I need to be this this legend right now. And he was just like, you gotta you gotta cut that out because uh, it's gonna it's gonna be a long road for you if that's the way you're gonna approach this. And that was something that really stuck with me as well. Yeah, if you put the court if you put the the cart before the horse or however they say it, and you yeah, you that, try to skip yeah. to the ending, you're always gonna be chasing that ending without actually charting the path to get there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That that ending of being a legendary coach instead of just focusing on being present with who you are in the moment. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's, I think that's something that is really important is just to be, you know, it's that cliche of, of what be, be here now. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And not being, I like to tell, so I, I run a lot of swim camps and, um, what I like to tell kids before we start the camp. And I think this is important even up and especially in being a college coach where you guys have such a grind that you put yourselves through um, being here now and not being somewhere else in space and some when else in time in your mind, nice. just being here and now, and that's it. Yeah. But also, and this pivots to something else that I was hoping to talk to you about 
understanding your role. And it's really important to not only be humble enough to know your role, but also that the people around you are kind enough that they tell you what your role is and they train you for it. So you quit the team your senior year and and I want to skip to the part where you were about to become assistant coach, but you were a volunteer from basically your senior year when you were an undergrad assistant to becoming an official volunteer your fifth year in 2013-2014, correct? Uh yeah. Well, it wasn't it wasn't my fifth year I was graduated, but yeah, that was the first year I was uh a volunteer assistant. Fair, fair enough. You were graduated. And all the way through 16 and into now, um, how have you seen your role shift, both the stark change between just basically having the space to learn from Chris and pick up the slack that he needed from you um, into becoming the hired assistant and then seeing your role shift as you grew and you became more comfortable with your role? What are some ways that you've seen your role change and what what do you what you do that's vital to the success of the program? Ooh, that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I, I don't know that my role has changed too terribly in terms of like the X's and O's of things, but um, I guess the way I've gone about doing things has changed as as I've just gotten more experience and gotten more comfortable and, and become more confident in myself. And, um, you know, I think for anyone who's not super familiar with the way the team works or the team runs, you know, Eddie is, I mean, Eddie is the guy, right? I mean, um, he is pretty much, he's writing most of the workouts or although not writing them, I guess, dictating them. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and Fair, cause he, he'll just, he looks like he's coming up with it off the top of his head five minutes before practice starts. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, you almost gotta, one of the things that I've learned from Eddie and even though it's been frustrating sometimes is, uh, you, you learn how to think on your feet just because Eddie's the type of coach who, you know, after morning practice, he might tell you, all right, this is what we're doing this afternoon. And then he'll call you at 11 a.m. and say, actually, nope, I want to do this this afternoon. And then at three for practice, he's saying, actually, scrap that last one. We're doing something completely different. And oh, by the way, you're taking the distance, guys, and they're starting the main set in six minutes, you know, like, good luck. <laughs> right. Um, but um, I think the the way I've always looked at my role and I think the way Chris looked at his role in a lot of ways as well is, is almost being a balance to Ed, right. Or a foil to Ed and maybe filling in gaps, right. That need to be filled in. And mm -hmm. so you're kind of like, a, uh, you're a little bit of a Jack of all trades doing a lot of different things and, and your, your role may change day to day in terms of what's exactly needed from you within a practice or within a day or, um, within a, a week. Um, but, um, it's, it's something where it's, it's always interesting cause you never exactly know what you're going to get. <laughs> sure. Um, but like I was saying, 
earlier, um, I think it's not necessarily the, the, the substance of my job that's changed too terribly much. I mean, I think Eddie's given me kind of some more, more control over recruiting and, um, you know, writing sets and taking groups and stuff like that on a daily basis. But the real X's and O's of things have kind of remained the same. I think a lot of it's just been how I've gone about things. And, and it's a lot of that has come through just gaining confidence, right. To maybe, um, maybe talk to Eddie and, and give him my honest opinion about something, right. Or to pull guys aside and have honest conversations with them about him um, or with them about how I'm thinking about a set or what they're doing or what they should be doing. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a definite step from being like a volunteer coach where maybe even though you have a role in the program, uh, you maybe don't feel like you have the confidence to like, as a volunteer coach to sit down an Olympic gold medalist, right. And tell them like, yeah, actually, I don't think you're doing such a great job right now, you know, because like how many, uh, how many Olympic gold medalists are going to look at a volunteer coach and be like, uh, are you, I mean, are you just going to leave next year anyway? So why are we having this conversation? Right. <laughs> like, and, yeah. And also like, who are you to this program? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sure. Um, and I got to so, say, and that comes from a place of also being someone who's been a volunteer at one point, but keep continue. Keep going. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think there's, um, and that's not to say that like it's necessarily been done in, in a disrespectful way, but it's just, you know, if you're coming to a program, you're coming to swim for certain coaches, right? Um, and you're kind of maybe. You're there ready. for them. Yes. There you go. There you go. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Sure. I mean, when I was at, when I was at my volunteer year at UVA, um, Todd DeSorbo, their head coach, you know, guy who is now considered one of the best sprint coaches in the country. People are coming to swim for him. Mm -hmm. What is Austin Suroff year two of being a, a collegiate coach volunteer number seven guy on the food chain? <laughs> what, what is his opinion compared to that? Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good way of putting it. What I'm gathering from what you're saying is Wyatt Collins 2013 through 2020, the, the structure of the role hasn't changed, which is, you fill in the gaps and Eddie sets the tone, right? Yeah. And the only constant is the change. But your relationship to Eddie and your ability to shape what that role is has changed. Yeah, that's actually a really great way of putting it as well. Um, you, you know, you would make a great uh, greeting card writer or a thank you card writer, writer whatever you said that you're... Uh, <laughs> You're the best in your family ass. <laughs> Bur birthday cards are my specialty. Birthday cards. Okay. <laughs> Reading cards. Thank you cards. Birthday cards. There you go. Yeah. And so your relationship grows and are you at a, obviously you're at a point now where you, you chart your own path in the program to a degree, but would you say that your main role is giving Eddie the space to basically cook as they say? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that is certainly part of, uh, part of my role. You know I mean? It's to, 
make sure that Eddie is, yeah, that's actually a great way of putting it. Has a, has a space to cook. I've never heard that, that phrase before, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's like spot on. Yeah. It's a, the kids are saying it these days. I'm trying to stay hip. Oh yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Gra- Grandpa Austin and Grandpa Wyatt just throwing out Instagram terms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're getting, getting young again. Awesome. Yeah. But I want to tie it back to what I said earlier when we were talking about just the amount of space that the program has, it also does seem that, and don't you don't have to respond to this, but what I gathered from what the role that Cubic carved out over the years and tr- literally trained you for five years to take over from him is, you know, this coach has someone at his disposal that knows him inside and out and has the ability to adapt basically on a, day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute, second-to-second basis to any changes that might come through his mind. And so I guess people ask me the secret sauce of Texas a lot. You know, whenever I'd go to different programs Mm -hmm. for coaching, everybody says the same, or even for swimming, or if I just talk to people, if I'm at one of my swim clinics and one of the coaches or one of the parents come up to me and they'll say, well, what, what does Eddie do that's special? And I'll tell them stuff about how, you know, he just knows down to his core how to know a person and help them get faster, or yeah. he's internalized fluid periodization to the point that he tapers people better than anybody else. Um, but what I really truly believe is that, and again, I'm pumping you up so you don't have to do a whole, no, I'm, I'm sure that's not true thing, <laughs> but is that cubic before and you now, it's that he has such an such a a perfect relationship with with his assistant being yourself or cubic and then also what volunteer is there at the time that he's given this this huge um awesome basically like a like a metaphorical pasture where he can just steer the program wherever he wants it to go and it's probably going to be the right way and just being blocked from all these external pressures and i'm wondering if 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 that feels accurate or if there's something that I'm missing when I say that. No, I mean, I think, I think that's a very apt way of putting it. Um, I think that one of the things that I, I mean, I, I learned from Chris. I also just learned from, you know, observation and, and realized as a volunteer coach is look like, I, I mean, Eddie is, Eddie is the greatest swim coach men's swim coach in history right and when he is done he will go down as the greatest men's swim coach in in ncaa history probably maybe in swimming history you could probably make an argument for greatest coach period right of of any sport um and the mount rushmore would include his face without a doubt without a doubt and if it doesn't it's a it'd be a freaking travesty you know um (laughs) but um I think that as as someone who is still you know young in his in his coaching career, um, it's not lost on me that you know part of my job is like I I want to keep Eddie going right and want to make sure that he has the like you said the pasture or he has the um, the latitude to kind of be creative and make decisions on the fly, which is 
you know, that's the way he's done things and that's the way he's comfortable doing things. Um, and, you know, part of my job is to, is to finding, is to, is to find ways to make that work. And um, I think that's part of being an assistant coach, right? I mean, you, you are the assistant to the head coach. And so part of your, part of your position, part of your job is if the head coach is saying, Hey, I think we need to do this and this is how I want to do it. You're making it happen. Um, obviously you can give feedback and be honest and, and hopefully have um, some great conversations if you don't completely agree and, and can sit down and hash some things out. But at the end of the day, it's like if the head coach want to do something, then part of your role is to make sure it happens. Right. <laughs> and, the, and anything that you guys may hash out in the back office his word is going to be the final word. And when you guys step out on the deck, you're completely in unison with what you present to the men. Oh yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, I think that's, that's, uh, that's a given, you know, not, I mean, and I don't say that it's a given, but again, it's a given for the program, but even discord among coaching staffs can be something that happens, right? That it's also a standard of, you know, and, and this is something that um, I believe about Cubic is that even if they may have disagreed about something, they came out on the deck and they talked to, and they talked to us together. Like it was their idea as like this whole one thing mm-hmm. coming from, from their, both their minds at the same time. No one knows whose idea, what it was. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Eddie's Eddie has said to me before that the, the, the best head coaches or the smartest head coaches um, are going to hire assistant coaches that don't agree with them, right? And that don't always, aren't going to always just push the head coach's agenda um, without any disagreement or any um, different thoughts about things. Um, and he's, you know, he's always said to me that like, I want to have guys on staff who are going to challenge me and are going to make me think about things in different ways. And, you know, that goes to say that like, yeah, of course, Eddie and I do not, we don't agree a hundred percent of the time. Right. Um, but if we ever don't agree, you know, we're having a conversation about it and we're, we're hashing it out and we have two different points of view. And there are times where, you know, we walk out of those conversations where, Maybe he's seeing things in a different way because of a, of the perspective that I uh, gave him, or maybe you know he explains why he's thinking about something a certain way, and I'm walking out saying, "Okay, yeah, I actually didn't <laughs> didn't think about that side of it um, at all, and that makes complete sense." Um, and you know, more oftentimes, more more often than not, it's it's that situation because he's you know he's really seen it all, right? And he has a lot of experience and. Um, it's something that is, it's, it's a good relationship, you know, it's a good friendship, good coaching relationship. Um, and I'm super fortunate to be able to have someone who encourages not discord or is that the right word? I'm not sure if discord, discord isn't inherently negative, but so I think discord is okay. Okay. Yeah. Who encourages that? But, um, you know, is 
is someone who wants to be able to have those conversations and not have it just be a situation of like, I'm saying jump and you're responding how high, right? <laughs> right. It's uh, there. You have equity in the decision making as well. And at least a voice yeah. to speak your opinion about the matter. Right, right. That's that's a really good way of putting it. And, and you know, it, it's something that just talking about it out loud, it, you know, I think the the way one of the great things about Eddie as well is that he's he he gives the guys on the team a voice and equity as well. You know, I mean, it's a scenario that I've seen play out a lot of times where maybe, um, you know, if we're doing a fast day, Eddie may tell guys, Hey, I, this is what I'm kind of thinking for you. But if you have, if you have something that you want to do, or you have a certain set that you want to do, or you've been thinking about something for the last week, then let's talk about it. And doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to do it, but let's at least have a conversation, you know, or if we're getting ready to hop in for practice and someone wants to talk to Eddie or myself about, you know, how they feel like they're not doing enough of X, Y, or Z, or they're doing too much of X, Y, or Z, or they want to do something different a few times a week, or they want to be in a different group a few times a week. Um, One of the great things about Eddie is I think he has a a pretty good open door policy where he'll have those conversations with the swimmers um, and at least explain, allow them to explain where they're coming from. And Eddie has the chance to explain where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, you know, there's either a compromise reached or there's a situation where someone's walking out of the room being like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Let's go with that. You know, like, let's try it. And it's not a situation where it's just like a dictator who is saying, <laughs> this is the way it has to be. And there is no wiggle room or there is no, um, ability to have a conversation about it mm-hmm. and i i think the way you put it was is is like perfect just equity in in a decision you know i think that goes a long way towards allowing everyone to who's part of the team to feel like they are um that they are part of the team right and that they have some say or they have some ability to give or voice their opinions on things um and that's something that I've always respected Ed immensely for. When you have, and we're going to call it power, even though it's a weird word to describe for him, but when you have his level of power in a situation, because he does, and these kids are part of this program that's his story before them and coming back to this collective history and tradition and consciousness um, before they even get there, Think about, I guess I'm thinking about the value of that equity when it's given to them, right? It's like you're giving them a little piece of gold when Eddie invites that conversation of, and I've had those days where I was like, Eddie, I want to do this at this taper practice that we're doing. Like, I want to paste this and it'll be like, yeah, sounds great. Yep. Or I'll say, you know, I feel like doing this at this meet instead of that. And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. And you get, you you now have a piece of this powerful thing. Like it's yours and you're steering the ship as much as the people quote unquote in power are. Yeah. And I I think it, I think it gives you some accountability as well, you know, because it gives you, um, it, it maybe doesn't put you in the driver's seat per se, but it puts you in the car, right. (laughs) Or it allows you to, um, 
have some ownership over what's going on and over your own career, you know? And I think that's really important. So I think there is, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a stretch to say that it's empowering, but it's something along those lines. I think empowering is the perfect word because the power flows from the top down, you know, and power gone wrong is someone saying, do this, do that. We're going here and you, you can do it if you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And I guess in, in this program, it's flipped to where this person that has this outsized influence and ability to assert themselves does that and is very centered in their principles and will steer the program but they also give a ton of it away and trust that others will do the same with it. And like you said, it gives them accountability and it empowers them at the same time that everyone from the top on down, however you may stack that feels like this is mine. Like I have a piece of this too, and I'm going to give everything I can. I mean, it's like holding shares in the company you work for, right? Yeah, actually. Like you're going to work your butt off to make sure that those shares are worth more than when you arrived as you put it, leaving the place better than when you found it. Yeah, actually, that's another really, really great analogy of like the share analogy. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, God, I love our chats, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really glad that we got to to press one down as a recording. Um, Wyatt, thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, of course. I uh, had a blast. I'm, a, I'm super pumped that you're branching out of the podcast game and like you had said i'm always a fan of our conversations and allowing us to just have some stream of consciousness talks and jump around the page a little bit um Mm -hmm. and always down to do it again yeah we're definitely gonna have you back dude because i mean we just put down a huge podcast and i feel like there's so much more i want to talk to you about but that's just because you've been my friend for as long as you have and like you i always appreciate our talks but you know, if you ever miss me sometime, just shoot me a text that you want a greeting card and I'll, <laughs> I'll write you one and, and you'll feel Dude, a little bit better. Actually, now that you should be, uh, be careful with what you wish for, man, because now I might be hitting you up for those. <laughs> I'm going to buy myself some stationery just so I can, hit uh, you with, just so I can hit you with a really nice looking greeting card every once in a while. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Wyatt Collins. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by, buddy. Talk to you. Yep. Anytime. Stay safe out there, man. All right, that's the show. Thank you to Wyatt for stopping by and indulging me for our long chat. Um, I hope you guys got a nice little glimpse into our friendship where we basically just talk to each other and the conversation flows wherever it may go. Uh, At one point, I think one of us mentioned going down the rabbit hole, and that's how Wyatt likes to describe our conversations that we have. So I'm glad that all of you got to hear that. Keep an eye out. Next week, I'm starting an ISL week for, for the podcast where I'm talking to multiple swimmers that are over in Budapest. I'm also talking to one of the coaches of an ISL team last year, a pretty big name coach. So keep an eye out on my Instagram page and on the Pro Corner podcast Instagram page for the announcements about the athletes and the coaches that I talk to. I'm also going to be doing a mailbag episode pretty soon where I read messages, questions, feedback, and suggestions from the listeners of the podcast. I've gotten a lot of great feedback so far, uh, some really interesting questions. So 
if you want to hear your question read and answered on the pod, DM them at Pro Corner Podcast on Instagram or email me directly, austin at procornerpodcast.com. Some of the best questions will get read and answered on the pod. And if I find a couple I really like, I might even bring a guest in to read them with me and get their perspective on the question. I want to thank you guys for stopping by and I'll see you soon. Take care.